Oh, good morning. Good morning. It is good to see everyone. It's good to be together on the Lord's Day. Um, uh, this morning, as we continue our time in the book of Acts, uh, we find ourselves in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 4, from verse 36, picking it up right where we left off last week. So turn with me there. We'll go all the way up to uh, verse 11 of chapter 5. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed In your heart, you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him with him, carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, uh, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is God's word. Well, church, the the text in front of us this morning uh, is confronting us with an idea that we haven't had to wrestle with yet in the book of Acts. And that idea is the piercing purity of God's holiness. What we have in front of us is judgment. A full throttle shout from heaven that God is holy and he is to be regarded as holy by his people. This is the first miracle that is destructive in the book of Acts. When I say destructive, I mean most miracles that we have seen so far and that we will see in the book of Acts are all healing. They, they They restore. But here we have miracles too that are destructive. It's the first one in this volume and there will be more signs of judgment, more signs in future in the book of Acts that we'll see of of judgment, of destructive miracles. But what makes this one uh, unique in the entire book is that this is the only miracle judgment against those in the New Covenant community. In the whole book of Acts, 
This is the only time where we see God stretching out a miracle against those who are in the covenant community. Of course, in the old covenant community, this happened a number of times. Uh, there were a number of, there were multiple miracle judgments by God against His people in the Old Testament. You'll remember, for example, in Numbers 12, Miriam, Miriam was judged with instant leprosy for her racism. In Numbers chapter 16, the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all their families for their rebellion against the leadership of Moses. All of these signs, all of these signs, these miracles of God's miraculous power aimed destructively against the people in his own covenant community communicate one thing. And that one thing is this. The Lord is holy and he is to be regarded as such by us. There is a sin here that happens in front of us. A horrible sin, an evil sin. One that we would do well to pay attention to so that we do not replicate it. But first we must understand the context of the sin for us to be able to know the sin properly. Luke introduces this entire section by giving us the summary that he gave us from verse 32 that we saw last week. You remember what we saw last week? In truth, the, the summary that we spent time on last week was a necessary background for us to understand this particular sin. And the summary we looked at was, last week was the fact that the church was of one heart and of one soul, such that those who had things, who had an abundance of things, were selling them and giving them for the, benef- for the benefit of those who had nothing in the church. And then here, in our text this morning, he proceeds to give us an example of such generosity in a man named Joseph. Look again at verse 36 of chapter 4. Thus Joseph was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Joseph... This man from Cyprus was so pure in his attentions that the apostles renamed him. They honored him by giving him a new name, a name that befits his character, the name Barnabas. Which Luke tells us that this name means son of encouragement. Barnabas is certainly going to live up to his name. This is not just the only time we're going to see Barnabas a lot more in the book of Acts. He's going to be a massive figure in the book of Acts. And in fact, the only people that get more airtime in the book of Acts um, is Peter and Paul. Barnabas is number three. So he is an honored man. But here he is called by the apostles a new name, a name of honor that is public and known among the people. Barnabas exemplifies the good and general among the attitude of God's people at that time. See, God's people had a a particular attitude. This group of over 5,000, they had a particular attitude of how to to act and how to to consider one another. And Barnabas is the shining example of that. He is the, the typical example of what you were to find from those who had extra fields at that time. They were sharing with the believers and they were selling some of their things to care for one another. And Barnabas is worth honoring. 
There is something to be said here, even as we pass by really quickly in this point, but there is something to be said about honor among the believers in the church. The New Testament is full of men and women being honored for their service to the church. But what is striking, if you think about what is it that that they're honored for, these people that we hear their names throughout the New Testament, what is striking is that they are honored most of the time for how they care for the believers. You and I are tempted to think that if somebody needs to be honored, they need to be honored for their giftings. They need to be honored for how charismatic a preacher they are. They need to be honored, you know, for how clever they are perhaps or how they're able to understand mysteries. And certainly there is a bit of that. But by and large, the large bulk of the names that we see in the New Testament being honored is for how they care for the New New Testament community. Macedonian church is honored by Paul. And he's so much so that he, he raises them, them up as an example to the Corinthians, as we saw a few weeks, a few months ago when uh, uh, Michael took us through that text in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They're honored publicly. This, this is the shining example. Look, they had nothing, but they decided that they would sacrifice even that nothing so that the other saints in Jerusalem might have something. Timothy is honored by Paul in Philippians chapter 2 because this is what Paul says about him. He says, Other men seek their own interests, but Timothy is genuinely concerned with your welfare. Talking about the Philippians. Other men, other gospel ministers that Paul has around him as he is in prison, they're all concerned with their own interests But Timothy is the only one who is like-minded to Paul, Paul says, and he's genuinely, truthfully concerned for the welfare of the saints. In the same chapter, he honors a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And he's honored for the very same reason. Epaphroditus was distressed that the church at Philippi was distressed. Time would fail to talk about Prisca and Aquila, Syntyche and Euodia, Titus, many of these and others are honored by the apostles because of how they work hard and how much they sacrifice for the health and physical well-being of the saints. See, the Lord Jesus did say that the greatest among you is what? Your servant. The greatest among you is the one who serves you the most. And the apostles knew that, and they honored those who loved the saints. See, the way to Christian honor is downward. The way to Christian honor is to not seek for it, but rather to seek for the betterment of others. Well, we're passing by there. Ananias and Sapphira are are introduced to us in contrast to Barnabas and the rest of the church. Ananias and Sapphira are introduced to us as those who act differently. Luke Luke introduces Ananias to us with a but. Do you see that in verse 1 of chapter 5? With a big but. Here's a church that is going one direction, but. Here's another one. 
Unlike the rest of the church that is motivated by a pure heart of mutual care and affection, Ananias and Sapphira are not on the same page. They have other pursuits. They have other agendas. Their introduction is a big but. Just imagine we're talking about a matric class. And the principal explains that this matric class this year was hard working. They applied themselves. They were here every trying to make sure they get good grades. But John. <laughs> That's what you're hearing. With this, when you see this but, it's very important. But this is a different person here. John is not part of the Joe. John is a, a, is a part of the group. He's here in the group, but he's not with the group. He's not drunk of the same things that the group has drunk from. He doesn't have the same motivations that the, the group has. He's, he's alone even though he's in a crowd. This is serious. This is very serious, dear saints. You do not want to be the person who is witnessing God's work around you, being part of the general crowd without yourself having the personal transformation and commitment that the others around you have. You don't want to be the big butt in the room. It's very possible that you are part of a group and yet you are alone. You are not experiencing fellowship with God, wonder at His word, joy at His commandments. This text reminds us really that while God can be working in us as a group, it is possible that some of us in here are committed to evil. It is possible that while God might be working, we're seeing baptisms and we're seeing people change, we're seeing people grow. God is really doing that. But it is possible that one of us or two of us here are committed to sensuality, to self-promotion, and they're committed categorically to that. Let this be a warning to us. To not be those people. Well, that's the, that's the context of the sin. Now I want us to turn our attention specifically to the sin itself. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5 and let's read together. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. There are about four things in the way that Luke writes the narrative that gives us a clear uh, explanation, that give us that our building blocks to explain to us the depth and width of the sin. The first thing that Luke tells us here is that he describes Ananias' action as a conspiracy with his wife to keep back for himself some of the proceeds of what he sold. The key is the phrase, kept back, keep back. The phrase shows up again when Peter interrogates Ananias and says, Why has Satan filled your heart to like the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of what was sold? 
Ananias' sin was that of pretentious insincerity. He is deciding at this point to communicate to the Holy Spirit and to the church that he is generous when he is not. He wants to communicate, I am a generous person, when in fact there is no generosity in his heart. He wanted to be seen among the people as one who has divested himself of the love of earthly possessions, when in actual fact his desire was for more earthly possessions. Many commentators think that it is very possible that he saw the honorable name given to Joseph, the name Barnabas, and he wanted to be honored in the same way by the apostles. And I am inclined to agree with that assessment because it would explain why Luke contrasts Barnabas and Ananias very quickly. You see, Luke didn't need to tell us about Barnabas. Luke could have just jumped from verse 32, verse 33, verse 34, and 35, and then jumped to verse 1. He didn't need to insert that story about Barnabas there. The reason, perhaps, he's inserting it there is he's trying to connect. Here was one guy who was honored for selling a piece of land and was given a name, a new name, because of his encouragement. And then here's another one who wanted to be like this one. But he really wasn't like this one in heart. He wanted the praise, the honor of being a a son of encouragement when he truly was not. You see, the the issue here is that the money was his. There's no compulsion here. We, We spoke about this last week. There was no compulsion. He could have sold the land and told the church that he is giving half of what is sold and it would, have been, it would have been over. He could have just been like, I sold a piece of land, guys, but I have other projects in mind, so let me just, I'll just give half of it. End of story, let's move on with life. <laughs> no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give 25% of it. I, I need the 75% for other things. Nobody cares. Thank you for that 25%. Some saints will, will use it. No, he wants to to show that he is one who gives everything. He wants everybody to think, look at at him. Another Barnabas, Barnabas (laughs) 2.0. Look at him. He loves loves us, he sold the field. See, uh, Peter communicates this and says, but the money was completely yours. Uh, Nobody compelled you. This makes no sense. Why come here and try to deceive the Holy Spirit? This leaves us with a few lessons. Hear me clearly, dear saints. Blessed is the Christian who is aware of his or her own true state of heart. We are all tempted to put forward our best foot. Is that the way you say that phrase? We're all tempted to put our best foot forward. There you go. One writer explains that we all have the tendency to exaggerate our depth of character while while dealing with our flaws leniently. We make light of our flaws and make a big deal about our depth of character. And the Bible has a term for this tendency. It's hypocrisy. 
we, con- we consciously or subconsciously put forward a better image of ourselves than really exists. The outward appearance of our character and the inner reality that only God knows do not match. C.S. Lewis explains this in his book, The Four Loves. And he says it this way. He says, Those like myself whose imagination of themselves far exceeds their actual obedience are subject to a just penalty. We easily imagine conditions far better than we have actually attained. If we described what we have imagined ourselves to be, we may make others and even make ourselves believe that we are really arrived there. I agree with Lewis. This is good stuff from him. There is a self-deception that can exist when we lie and lie and lie and lie so much, so, so much so that we believe that it's true. That we lie about who we are so much so to others that we believe that that's actually the reality. And what I'm putting forward to you this morning, church, is to forget the press. Forget your reputation. Forget what others think you are. Rather, examine yourself and think of yourself in light of that examination. Attempt as much as you can to ensure that the image of yourself that you portray to others is as consistent as who you are. I'm not saying everyone is going to know every single sin that you struggle with. In many cases, in fact, that might be very unwise. But what I'm saying is do not communicate to others that you are something that you and God know that you're not. See, because at this stage, you're you're, you're placing too much emphasis on what others think of you and very little on what God thinks. Because God is there seeing you, communicating to people that, that, that you're this theologian, you're this really loving person, you're this person who walks above sexual purity, you're this person who's perfect... When you and God know the rottenness that is there when nobody else is looking. You see what I'm saying? Don't communicate what you're not. The Lord Jesus makes it clear that this hypocrisy shows itself not just in giving. He talks about, the Lord Jesus does talk about it in giving in Matthew. But he, it shows itself in different things. It shows itself in, in public prayers. It shows itself in, 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 in shows of holiness. The Pharisees were always wanting other people to think that they were holy. And the Lord Jesus Christ called them whitewashed tombs. Do you understand what that means? That is a tomb that has plascon on it. The nice shiny plascon paint painted on top of it. But inside there is death and decay. We must avoid hypocrisy, dear saints, at all costs. It is a serious temptation, let's be honest. Yeah? It is a serious temptation to put to, to explain to others that you're something that you're not. The Lord Jesus Christ did not spend a lot of time warning his disciples on every single sin available. There were very few sins that he specifically called out and warned his disciples to watch out against. And one of them is hypocrisy. 
the leaven of the Pharisees. He warned his disciples to not to stay away from the leaven of the Pharisees. Stay away from hypocrisy. May God help us, dear church. May God help us. This is going to require the work of God in us. A true transformation where we're actually walking in repentance and humility and fighting against this desire to explain ourselves better than we are. I would encourage us to pray, dear saints. If you have a prayer, have this prayer. Pray that God will help you to not be a hypocrite. You see, when when you pray your daily prayer, lead us not into temptation. Specifically mention, please Lord, I'm going to be with Christians today. Please lead me away from hypocrisy. Please keep me back from the temptation of wanting to communicate that everything is right with me when it isn't. You see, one of the reasons this is so important is because how are you going to get help? How are you going to get help? You're not going to get help if you're busy, if everything is fine. You're not going to be able to be encouraged by your brothers and sisters in the right way. Nobody's going to offer to be your accountability partner in the problem that you don't have, right? You don't have this problem, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say, hey, let me add you to our accountability group because the rest of us are are struggling with this problem, and so we're holding each other accountable and fighting against it. But you're not gonna be a part of that WhatsApp group. You're not gonna get help. You're not gonna walk together with others. You're not gonna be because you're not honest. And it needs, it needs to, it needs to be not done by us. It needs to be stayed away from by us because we are here to encourage one another towards holiness. And, and, and perhaps one thing that could help us is to not be so shocked when people sin. Okay? Just calm down. Okay? Just relax. Okay? When, when somebody sinned, don't be you. Just, 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 okay. Just drink coffee. Like, okay. Okay, let's deal with this. Biblically. There's ways to deal with sin in the Bible. Okay? There's, I mean, it's... It's not a shock when somebody, when someone tells you something, even if it's horrible. Just be like, okay, so brother, this is a weakness for you. My sister, this is a weakness for you. Let's work together to help you get out of this. Okay? Perhaps that will help us to be more easier to be able to, to, to tell each other and to be able to put ourselves as exactly as we are. May God help us um, in our endeavor to stay away from hypocrisy. Well, the second thing that is said here in the text that, that gives us clarity as to what the sin is, is that Peter flat out calls Ananias a liar. He says to him, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And at the end he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Ananias came to deceive. He came with the intention to hide the truth. And Peter wants to emphasize to Ananias that you are not lying to men, you are lying to God. He is showing the foolishness of the endeavor to deceive God who knows everything. Ananias is acting as if God is not here, as if God is not among them. He is treating God with contempt. There is a a lot of foolishness in this text. And we must admit that sometimes there is a lot of foolishness in us. You see, the concept of deceit, 
of trying to bend the truth, trying to hide the truth, trying to exaggerate the truth, all of this. The concept of deceit assumes that no one else sees. You with me? Okay? For deceit to be successful, it requires nobody else to know and be able to see and call out the deceit. But tell me, dear Christian, who is always with you? Who is it that indwells you? Does he not know and search your hearts? Does he not know the intentions of your scheming? Do you think honestly that he is confused by your words? You know, when, you, when you're just adding words and trying to explain something, adding and adding and adding words so that the person in front of you can be confused. Do you honestly think that the Holy Spirit is confused? This is foolishness. That's why P- Peter's asking, just like asking all these questions. What on earth? What are you doing? Do you honestly think you can lie to God? We must stay away from deceit. As God's people to whom God has revealed himself to be the one who is all-knowing, who searches heart, who's all-seeing, we must stay away from the sin of deceit. Our Lord, our King, searches hearts. And here in this text, Peter is somehow given the ability to see that Ananias has lied. Perhaps through revelation, some kind of revelation, but the Holy Spirit has made it clear to Peter that there is a lie, there is a serious deception happening in front of him. I want you to notice also that in verse 3 a word is used for the first time in an evil context. In verse 3 Luke uses the word filled, Peter rather, uses the word filled. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Throughout the book, this book so far, the church has been filled with what? The Holy Spirit. And we just saw a few weeks ago, in verse 31 of chapter 4, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached with boldness. But here Ananias is not filled with the Holy Spirit, he is filled with Satan. Our Lord Jesus, of course, told us who the father of lies is. Satan. He was a liar from the beginning. And when we lie, we act at his behest. When we lie, when we contrive to deceive, especially to deceive the believers, especially to deceive when we've gathered together to try to communicate something that is clearly not true, we are acting at his behest. We must remember, dear saints, that our Lord finds lies to be abominable. In Proverbs chapter 6, he says so. He says he has seven things that he absolutely finds to be abominable. And one of them is someone who breathes out lies. Breathes out lies, pathologically, just lying, wanting to lie. And also, wanting to scheme and manipulate situations so that people are with you and not with the truth. You saints, the the case in front of us is rather clear. This is high treason. In the midst of God's people, as God is doing miracles, tongues, uh, healing of the lame man, People being saved, wonderful things happening. The earth shaking. It just shook a few a few verses ago. The earth was shaking while they were here. God being with them. 
in the midst of all of that, there is someone who is coalescing with the enemy. There is someone who is listening to the enemy and acting on the enemy's behest. This is treason. A third feature that Luke is keen to stress in this text is that this was a conspiracy between husband and wife. This was something that was gotten into by both husband and wife. Look again with me at verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself. Jump with me to verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Now hold on for a second. Do you understand what's going on? Did you sell the land? And he's probably saying exactly the amount. Luke doesn't find it necessary to tell us how much the amount is. But let's just say it's 300 rand. Did you tell me, she's given an opportunity, tell me, did you really sell that piece of land for this 300 rand? Yes, we sold it for 300 bucks. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. The wife had full knowledge of her husband's plan and she participated in the same deception. The wife was not coerced into it. It wasn't that she had no choice. No, she is a co-conspirator and she gets gets the exact same punishment that her husband received. What we see here is a remarkable emphasis where Luke wants us to see how much they were treated as individuals. See, they conspired together, but Sapphira was given an opportunity to recant before judgment. She was given a a chance to escape judgment, but she emphasized the conspiracy. She, She wanted to see the plan through. They had sat down and made this evil plan, and she wanted to execute it. She lied to the apostles in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sapphira here evidences the evil use of her role as wife. As Ananias' wife, she is to be a helpmeet for him in the Lord. She has the responsibility to see to it, like Paul says, that she respects her husband and submits to him. But not in evil. Not in evil. Not in deception. She is to be a help for him toward godliness and grace, love for, the Christ, love for Christ and the church, not in hypocrisy, not in the love of possessions, and certainly not in line to the Holy Spirit. This is an evil use of her, of her function, of her office as wife. There are examples of holy women in the scriptures and in history who opposed their husbands when their husbands were doing evil and in some cases when their husbands were tempted to pursue evil. My, fav- my personal favorite example from history is the story, story relayed by Richard Wurmbrandt. 
Uh, Wurmbrandt was a Romanian church leader at the time when the Soviets were controlling the churches and telling them what to preach. On one occasion, they were in a congress, they were in a meeting of church leaders. And the church leaders were talking and explaining that the message of Christianity must change in order to make sure that the Soviets are happy. But this is what Richard says happened while he and his wife Sabina were sitting down. My wife and I were present at this congress. Sabina told me, Richard, stand up and wash away the shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so and stand up for Christ, you will lose your husband. They will kill me. And she replied, I don't wish to have a coward for a husband. And he stood up and he was imprisoned. And the story of Richard Wurmbrand, I'm sure many of you maybe might have heard it in the book Tortured for Christ, has echoed throughout the generations. But here was a moment where he was tempted to fall in. And his wife says, no, we're going to stand. Speak. This is a challenge to the wives in the church and those who wish to be wives. Sometimes your husbands will fail. Sometimes your husbands will fall into various temptations. They're humans. They're not Christ. Sometimes your husbands will flirt with danger, perhaps temporarily weakened in spirit. You are to respectfully determine to not participate in their errors. If it is obvious to you that your husband is pulling in a direction that dishonors the Lord, you are to respectfully call out the sin. You are not to try to usurp your husband's authority, but God will judge you if you participate in your husband's sin. You see this? God will judge you. He will not hold you guiltless if you participate in your husband's sin. Do not conspire. Dear wives, do not conspire with your husbands to promote evil. And the last thing we must point out regarding this sin here, um, the last thing we must point out is that this sin is a testing of the Spirit of the Lord. See what Peter says. He says, Why have you agreed, agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? So there is a way to exhaust God figuratively. God doesn't get tired. But there is a way to exhaust God, to test His patience, to regard Him contemptuously. Here, Ananias and Sapphira have acted as if the Holy Spirit is blind. They have acted as if the Holy Spirit is a man who can be confused with words and does not know hearts. It is arrogance, rebellion of the highest order to not regard God as God. To not consider God in his, the fullness of His attributes. The, 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 as we, we read this morning, as Benji so helpfully read for us in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, that the Israelites tested the Lord in the wilderness when they were complaining and grumbling. They, they, they come to a place without any water and they think that the same God who just opened up the sea, the, 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 
the, the Red Sea and made them pass through, that God is unable to now give them water to drink in the desert. The same God who did 10 ridiculous plagues in Egypt just a moment ago, they have now completely forgotten and they are now acting as if he does not have the power to give them food in the desert. It's the same thing here. It's testing God. It's pushing. It's, saying, it's acting as though God is not God and he's not within his all, all of his attributes. As if God is somehow inconsistent. As if God is somehow this, this thing that can be turned on and turned off. We must shy away from this. We must shy away from, from this act of, of not dealing with God as God. When you pray, when you, when you talk about God with others, when, you, when, you're, when you're living your life, you need to remember that God is with you and He is God. He is holy. His attributes are, are full. There is no lack in His attributes. There is nothing that can go over His head. If He had a head, we need to treat Him like He is God and trust in His attributes and also ensure that we are thinking about His power and judgment when we are tempted to sin. Well, there you have it. The sin is deception. The sin is hypocrisy. The sin is a conspiracy. And the sin is a testing of the Lord. Now, let's turn our attention to the judgment. Come back with me to verse 5. That was the sin. What is the judgment? Verse 5. When Ananias heard Peter's words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. What happened to Ananias after he attempted this sin? What is it that happened to him? The consuming fire of Israel consumed him. The Lord of hosts consumed him. God struck him down instantly. This wasn't like a shock. Oh, I'm so shocked I was found out. Ah, No. This was a judgment. Death instant from God. And, this, and when God is striking him down instantly, he makes a point to the surrounding community. And this point is duly heard and duly noted and it has the desired effect. Great fear comes over the entire church community and all those who heard it. And after about an interval of three hours, Sapphira comes in and she is given an opportunity to come clean. She doesn't take it. She perpetuates the lie and look at what happens to her. Verse 10. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Ananias and Sapphira are both killed instantly by God. And in both cases, the effect was great fear among God's people and the surroundings. This judgment communicates firstly that God is clearly among these people. God is here. If anybody had a doubt 
that the God of Israel, the ancient of days, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the one who destroys sin on contact, that God, if anybody was wondering if that God is here, now they know he's here. Why? Because somebody tried to deceive and died in need. See, the, the Holy One of Israel does not tolerate sin. Sin, he kills it. He destroys the deceitful on contact. If they perpetuate their sin, if they perpetuate their evil, and especially among his people, he will deal with it. He is the one who is here and working miracles, drawing many of them from death to life. He is the one who is doing these wonderful things of salvation. But we must understand that he is God. You see, there is a way to treat the covenant community as if God is not here. There is a way to treat church as if it's man's doing. Think about this. There is a way to treat the church as if it's a, man, it's a man's organization. When people jostle for positions, when people connive and scheme in the church, when people undermine the authority of the leaders, when people create and foster divisions among the people, they are treating the church as if God is not there. They're treating the church as if the church is just some organization that's made by people out there. When people treat the church constitution, here, yeah, well, because of this one law here, we need to do things this way, so let's break down the whole thing and, and try to canvass for votes in the church. That's treating the church as if it's some kind of organization. As if God is not the one who is here among us. As if the Lord Jesus Christ did not say that I am the one who walks among the lampstands. There is a way to treat church as if God is not here. We must be warned. He is here. We must ensure that our, that our ambitions, our attitudes are pure. Because the one who walks among us is pure. And has no time for evil. The Lord Jesus Christ often, while he was on earth, reminded his disciples that they ought to fear God. He told them, not once, not twice, number of times, told them, they ought not to fear man. They ought not to fear circumstance. They ought not to fear lack of resources. But if there is something that they should fear, they should fear God. And they should fear him appropriately. The Holy Spirit indwells us and we must know He is offended by our sin. We must, dear saints, be very careful to walk before Him in a manner that honors His great condescension. There's no temple anymore somewhere, in a corner somewhere. There's no temple anymore in Jerusalem. We are the temple. He is here and He is holy. We're, there's no holy of holies anymore. The holy of holies is here. He is among us. The earth, one preacher said it this way, that wherever I walk is holy ground. Why? Not because of me. Because I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When we gather here on the Lord's Day and we have communion, Paul warns us to rather judge ourselves than to eat and drink communion in an unworthy fashion. Okay? We, we try to say this whenever we have communion. Listen. If you have a serious sin that you're unwilling to repent of at that moment, if you're busy fighting with another church member and there's no real fellowship between the two of you, save yourself from judgment 
and do not eat or drink the cup. Save yourself from judgment. Listen, don't, pre- don't care that the people around you there in the seats are going to see that you didn't eat communion. Don't care. Don't present yourself as one walking with a clear conscience when you know that things are not right. Don't care so much that my, this person this person are going to see that I said no to the... No. Rather judge yourself. Because Paul says that if you eat, eat and drink of communion while you are in rebellious sin, while you are causing division in the church, it is possible that you might get sick and die. You understand this? It's not an idle threat. He says some of it has already happened in Corinth. Some of you have become sick and died because of the way you're treating the table. You're treating the table as if it's something other than what it is. That the Holy Spirit is here. That Christ is here with us to strengthen us. Now, of course, the, the great thing is to try, the, 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 the encouragement is to repent before. Okay? To remember, oh, this communion today. Okay, fine, let me drag myself and go re- reconcile with my sister. Let me, let me make this right. Oh, there's communion today. Let me, rec- let me sort it out first. And then, so you can join the table. That's the, that's the better thing, the, the repentance, and then join the table. But if for some reason you have not repented, and for some reason you're still stuck in it, don't care about appearances. God will judge you. We must conduct ourselves, dear saints, with covenant fear. A fear of God that acknowledges Him as holy and set apart. Set apart. This fear that we are that we, we are to have has an acknowledgement that Jesus the man has died for our sins. He has, he has reconciled us to God. We belong to Him. But that has other implications. We now belong to God and we are not to treat the death of Christ with mockery. But this fear must also acknowledge that we are saved for righteousness. That though we can deceive people, though we can say to people that we're something we are not, the Holy Spirit sees everything. And here's the problem, dear saint. Sometimes the fear that we are called to is put up against the joy that we are called to in the Christian life. Sometimes people want to make these as enemies. Some churches say are all about fear. Some churches are all about joy. But that is a horrible misunderstanding. The, there, is an ab- there is an abundant joy in your life because of what Christ has done. There is to be an abundant joy in your life because of what Christ has given you. Christ has given you life everlasting. But there is a superficial, fake, unreal joy a joy that is separated from the fear of God. There is a real, on the other hand, there is a real deep joy in Christ that acknowledges His holiness and acknowledges our responsibility to be faithful to Him. Let me say this in another way. It is not biblical joy when you are always happy and can sin with impunity. You can sin without a care, but I have the joy of the Lord. No, it's not the joy of the Lord. It's, it's a million other things, but the joy of the Lord, it isn't. That is not biblical joy. The joy comes from the Spirit is robust. It is a constant celebration of the finished work of Christ Jesus. That because of Him, we, can, we have our sins completely forgiven. 
and it is also at the same time a salivating over the words of God and a panting for Him and His law. The joy that comes from the Spirit is a feast of emotions. Part of its essential components are reverence for God, an an acknowledgement of His power both to save and to destroy, and a constant joy, happiness, because of what He has done for us. The fear of God that we, have, that we are called to is not the fear that the nations have. The nations, those who are outside of Christ, have nothing but an expectation of judgment. And that is real, deep, a, a, a different kind of fear. It's a different category of fear. It's a dread, knowing that I am to be destroyed. Unless men and women repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be no joy. There will be no life. And the fear that is to be expected is a a gloomy one. Whilst for us who are in Christ, and I would invite you if you're not in Christ, to come and have real joy. The real joy that we have means that we we don't have to be somber all the time. That we 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 can put oil on our heads like the Lord Jesus says and lift up our countenance. We can enjoy what God has given to us and enjoy the life that Christ has won for us. But in there also, there is a seriousness in dealing with our own sins. These things are not enemies. They are joined at the hip. These things are together. A joy, a thankfulness, an always smiling nature. Thankful because of what we have been given. And And a recognition that the one who walks among us is pure and does not look twice at sin. Let's pray. O Holy One of Israel, we repent of any of our sins when we have treated you with contempt, when we have tested you, acted as though you are not God. Forgive us. O by the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the finished work on the cross, forgive us. None of us in here can claim to be completely innocent in any of these sins we have seen this morning. All of us are weak. All of us have been tempted. And we ask that you cleanse us and that you give us and that you renew within us a spirit that is willing to do your will. Help us, Lord, to be holy. Help us to recognize your holiness. Help us to walk in light of your holiness. Lord, do not deal with us as our sins deserve but with mercy deal with us. Sometimes our necks are stiff. Sometimes our heads don't want to turn the way you want them to turn. But please don't destroy us. We, be- we beseech thee, Father. Suffer along with us and make us change. Transform us from within. Give us what we're lacking. If any man here is lacking joy in Christ, give it to him. If any woman here is lacking a love, a true love for the saints, give it to her. If anyone in here is is steeped in sensuality, licentiousness, legalism, anything that offends you, Lord, please don't destroy us, but be merciful to us and change us. Make us into the image of your Son. And continue to keep us pure. 
Continue to help us to walk in the narrow way. Oh Lord, I pray for each and every one of us here. Pray for each and every member of Heritage, everyone who comes to Heritage, everyone who considers Heritage home. Anyone who hears the words preached from this pulpit on Sunday. Lord, we pray for each and every one of them. That their love for you might be sincere. That their love for you might be true. That they might deal with their sins truthfully. And not be so concerned with the sins of others. That they might walk with purity in the light of your face. And we thank you for the gospel that unites us and draws us near. We thank you for the gospel that gives us confidence that in Christ Jesus we are whole. We have peace. Encourage us with this now. In his name we pray. Amen.